Let's turn to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation 4, starting with verse 1. We're continuing our series in the book of Revelation. And years ago, um, I surprised my wife and bought her tickets, bought us tickets to a, a concert. There was this Christian artist we really liked named Billy Sprague, um, and he happened to be in the area. And so we went to this concert, and honestly, I don't remember anything else about the concert. I know he did a good job, but the only thing I remember about the concert is one story he told. He talked about flying from his home, wherever he was, Tennessee, I think, to Texas. And you know how it is when you get on an airplane, the, the pilot, before you take off, always has to come on and give his little spiel about, well, we're going you know, to take off, we're going to go up to this altitude, and then we're going to head west, and then once we get there, the, the weather on the ground in DFW is, and he'll tell you, you know, 70 degrees or whatever. It's never 70 in Dallas-Fort Worth, you know that. It's either freezing or 120. But um, anyway... So he did this. The, the pilot does this. He does his little spiel. And then when he's done, he pauses. And then he comes back on and he says another sentence. And it was really kind of garbled and unclear. But to Billy Sprague, it sounded like he said, you are all my pitiful rivals. You are all my pitiful rivals. And then that was it. And then the plane you know, jetted up and they start down the runway. And, and Billy's looking around like, did anybody else hear that? Was I the only one? Was anybody else paying attention? Nobody else seems concerned. And he started worrying. What if, what if the pilot is this cackling, paranoid psychotic who's you know, going to crash us into the side of a mountain because of the voices in his head that told him to do that or something? And Well, obviously that didn't happen. They landed safely. But my wife and I just laughed and laughed about that story. In fact, we still will say that to each other just to make each other laugh. But it brings up something, something weird about our modern world, and that is this. Oftentimes, we place ourselves in the hands of people we don't know. We put our lives in the hands of total strangers. When's the last time you got on an airplane? Did you know your pilot's qualifications? How many hours he'd had? What his safety record was? Did you know how much sleep he got the night before? How, whether he, when's the last time he had something to drink? Was he, was he in, in good health at that time? Do you even know his name? Probably not. What about the next time you get on a bus? Do you stop and quiz the driver and make sure he's got a good safety record? I, I hate to go down this road, but what about the next time you have surgery? I mean, you ever thought about the fact that somebody's got to be this guy's first, right? What if you're his first? That's not, a, that's not a comforting thought. Now, I say all that, by the way, you're welcome. Yeah. I say all that because sometimes it seems like this world is out of control. That the one at the wheel doesn't have our best interests at heart. Or maybe doesn't know what he's doing. Or maybe he's just not all there. Sometimes it seems like our world is not under the control of someone who is either all-wise or all-loving or all-powerful. He can't be all three, right? book of Revelation shows us, it peels back the curtain and shows us what's going on behind the scenes in the throne room of heaven. And we've already seen our introduction in chapter 1. We, we, saw, we saw how this, is, this book is written to a group of churches 2,000 years ago. Remember, this book was not given to us. It wasn't placed in the Bible so that 2,000 years later, you and I could watch CNN and go, aha, it was exactly as it was foretold in the prophecy. It wasn't for that reason. It was given to churches 2,000 years ago, and by extension to us, 
in our times of struggle, in our times of concern, in our times of anxiety, to say, here's what's going on. And it, and it really tells us three things. I want to go over this again, just to keep it before you. Number one, it tells us, be ready. Be ready because times are going to be tough, but I'm coming back, Jesus says. You've got to be ready for my return. Secondly, uh, be aware. Be aware that, that I am in control and there is an unseen war going on behind the scenes and you get to be a part of that. You get to be a part of fighting on the side of righteousness and winning a victory. And number three, be encouraged because no matter what the scoreboard says right now, we know who wins the game. We know that Jesus wins. The side of good triumphs. So all of these things were given to us in this book, and you'll see them as we continue to study over the next several weeks. Now, we talked about that in week one. Last week, we looked at chapters two and three, and these seven letters to seven different churches at that time saying, here's what I see in you, and here's how you need to change. But today, we're going to look at chapters four and five, and we're going to see what's going on in the throne room of heaven where John uh, stands in, in the story we're going to look at today. And by the way, as we read this, you're going to see some bizarre images. I have this graphic novel in my, uh, in, on my bookshelf in my office. Someone, a very talented artist, has, has drawn all the scenes of the book of Revelation, literally. And it, it's really interesting. You don't need that, though, because these images aren't meant to be taken literally. They, they are symbols of something bigger. We do the same thing. We sometimes use terms that aren't meant to be taken literally. Like if you have a single friend and he comes to you and says, I met this girl the other day and I fell head over heels. You don't say, oh, are you, have, you, have you been hurt? Do you need to go to the hospital? you need a Band-Aid? No, you understand he's being metaphorical. That's, a, that's an expression. In the same way, the, the images that John uses here are not describing exactly what he saw in most cases. Sometimes I think they are. But, but when, the, when it's obvious that he's using bizarre imagery, he's calling forth... Uh, things that would be familiar to people who were steeped in the Old Testament and in apocalyptic genre. So, we'll try to work through all of that and we'll try to answer the question, who's flying the plane of our, our world? Who's flying the plane of your life? So, here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they st never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now again, this is, this is not supposed to be taken literally. John was taken into the presence of God, but he's not saying that in the presence of God there are literally seven spirits. There's only one Holy Spirit. Seven represents perfection. That was, a, that was a number that meant completion. Um, he's talking about these living creatures. You don't have to try to picture a lion covered in eyeballs. The, the lion, I think, represents God's majesty, his, his, his 
power and authority. The ox probably represents God's strength. The, the guy with the face of a man represents his wisdom, his understanding. And the eagle represents his quick action. But the idea that they're covered in eyes is pretty easy for us to understand. That's, that, that represents God's omniscience. God sees everything. He knows everything. John here is trying to say that when you get into the throne room of heaven, it's not like any place you've been before. When you stand in the presence of God, it's not like going to see your neighbor. It's not even like going to see the president. It's, it is, it is otherworldly. And you have no words. And this sets up what happens next. Chapter 5. Skip over to chapter 5, verse 1. And there's a drama in chapter 5 that I want you to try to inhabit with me. It said, Now in the right hand, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. So why is John so sad about the scroll that can't be opened? I, I need to explain this to you. And first of all, get a picture of the scroll. There's, there's a picture that we're going to post up there. So this, this huge scroll sealed with these seven wax seals. And you have to break each of those seals to open it. Now, why is it so important this, this scroll be opened? We're going to look at the contents of the scroll in particular and what happens when you break those seals next week when we look at chapters 6 and 7. Things get really dicey. Things get really hairy on the earth when this starts to happen. But the scroll represents the plan of God. Now, does anybody else here think this world's a little messed up, that God should do something about it? Anybody else? Am I the only one? Yeah. So everybody feels that way. Even Jesus felt that way. That's why He promised, that's why He taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's this understanding that God has a plan to fix the problems of this world and to bring everything to a, to a happy and a good conclusion. And that's what this scroll represents. So Almighty God holds up the scroll, says someone come, open this scroll, bring about my plan. Do we want that to happen? Yeah, we want it to happen. We don't want to go on in this world the way that it is right now. Because it's only getting worse. The problem is, no one is worthy to open the scroll. God's got this great plan for the justification of all things and making everything right. And nobody, I mean, there's no professor smart enough to figure it out. There's no warrior strong enough. There's no politician crafty enough. There's nobody who can bring this stuff about. And John weeps and weeps because he's like, it's right there and no one can do it. Now watch what happens next. Chapter five, uh, verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. So I want you to picture this. John is weeping. Someone taps him on the shoulder and says, no, no, look, the Lion of Judah is going to do it. And he turns to see a lion and instead sees a lamb. A lamb that has been slaughtered, covered in blood. Now again, John's not literally looking at a literal lamb. He is giving us Old Testament imagery. The, the term lion of Judah 
was a very familiar term to everybody reading this. For centuries, God's people had looked forward to a Messiah, someone who was going to show up and fix things. And they called him the Lion of Judah. Why? Because he, was, he would come from the Israelite tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes. And he would be like a lion. He would be majestic. He'd be strong. He'd be fierce. He's the root of David. That's what the elder calls him here. And that's not a, as familiar a term to us, but it refers to the fact that he would come from the, the ancestry of King David, the greatest king in Israel's history. You know, the, the fun thing about David's reign is when David was king of Israel, it was the only time in their history when they, they never lost a battle. Didn't matter who came against them, Philistines or, or Amalekites or any other ites. If they showed up with no matter how big their army was, David would take them down. And so everyone said, okay, when Messiah shows up, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, we are going to be unbeatable again. But when the Lion showed up that first time, around B.C. 4, in the reign of Herod the Great, he was a lamb. He wasn't the lion everyone expected. See, this idea of a lamb, that's also very familiar imagery because every Israelite grew up and every year, once a year, their father would take the, the purest and most beautiful and, and unblemished lamb in their flock or they'd go out and buy one if they had to. They would get a perfect lamb and they would bring it into their home and they'd watch their father slaughter this lamb. And they would remember as they ate, as they ate the roasted lamb, as they ate the bitter herbs and the, and the unleavened bread and drank the wine, they would remember there was a time centuries before when their people's lives were on the line and the only thing that saved them was the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their homes. And here comes Jesus and he says, that Passover lamb is me. I have come to die. See, the lion of Judah came into the world and rescued His people. Not by destroying their enemies, but by dying for their sins. The Lion of Judah was the Lamb of God. And now, and now in, this, in this crucial moment when history hangs in the balance, when the fate of the world is at stake, put yourself in this crowd full of angels and, and saints who've already died and gone before, and you're all standing there with all this suspense. Is God's plan going to come about? And all of a sudden, out of the crowd steps the Lamb of God. This humble man, this gentle man, this guy, the, the, the stone the builders absolutely rejected. This one who was despised by his people. This one who was, who was calm in the face of storm. This one who was humble and compassionate to those who were hurting and, and healed all that he could. He steps out of the crowd and walks confidently up to God and takes the scroll from his hand. And don't you know that if you were there that day, you would have erupted in applause? You would have shouted like you've never shouted in joy before? And that's exactly what happens. Look with me at verse, at verse 5. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 8. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So the people around the throne start to sing praise to the Lord Jesus Christ right there. 
Verse 11, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. You and I have never heard a choir like this before. Millions and millions of angelic warriors who've, who've dwelt with Jesus for centuries, for eternity. And they begin to sing praise in unison. And then we down on earth, we down on earth pick up on the song and we begin to shout and sing too. It says in verse 13, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said Amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. So it's picturing, it's picturing, again, not taken literally. Do you think every creature on earth is going to sing? I don't know. Is, is God going to create Narnia? Maybe. But I think this is symbolic. This is God's way of saying when Jesus takes that scroll, when Jesus brings all of history to completion and fulfills the plan of God since the beginning of human sin that ruined everything, we're going to shout and praise. And, and there's going to be a, an, an uproar of celebration like you've never experienced. And if you think it's exciting when your favorite team wins, you don't know. If you think it's exciting when your favorite candidate wins, you have no idea. If you think it's exciting when your kids come home, that's nice, not like this. This is fantastic joy. That's what we'll experience on that day. He is worthy. He is worthy. And you know why? Here's the surprising thing. I mean, you expected me to say that, right? You knew that Jesus was the hero of this story. The surprising thing is why He's worthy. It's right here in the song that the elders sing. Why is He worthy? It's not because He's strong, although He is. He created everything. It's not because He's wise, although He is. He knows all things. It's not because He's righteous, although He is. He, he lived a perfect, sinless life. But none of those things could have saved us. He is worthy. Why? Because He was slain. That's what the song says. He is worthy, for He was slain. And this is the hard part for us to understand. This is the part the world can't grasp. Do you know that this world is still fascinated by, by the character of Jesus Christ? You put Jesus on the cover of any magazine, it sells off the racks. I don't care whether it's Time Magazine or Field and Stream or Car and Driver. I mean, Jesus, Jesus sells. People want to know about Jesus. But what they can't accept, what they cannot, what most people can't seem to grasp, don't want to believe perhaps, it's the reason Jesus is great. It's because He died for our sins and rose again. And I'll say it a different way. If Jesus would have been exactly who He was and had done everything that He did, all the miracles, all the incredible moral teaching, all the compassion, all the character, all the perfect sinless righteousness, if He had, had been all of that and then at the last moment when the cross showed up said, nope, I'm not going there. If Jesus would have skipped the cross, then He would have been a failure. And we would all still be lost. Jesus is worthy to open the scroll only because He died. And not just died because everybody dies, but died an atoning death. A death for our sins. 
And that's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to understand that the problem in the world is not a lack of power. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's not a lack of even moral standards. The problem in the world is human sin. It's our separation from God because we have rejected Him. We have willingly rejected Him. And someone's got to bring us back to Him. Somebody's got to put us back together. And I know people say all the time, and and this is probably too fast, this is probably too short of a time to talk about this, but people say all the time, well, why couldn't God just write off our sin? You know, like a business writes off deductions on their tax day. Why couldn't God just look at us and say, ah, you sinned, so what? Every time someone hurts someone else, someone has to pay. Think about it. Think about it interpersonally. If I walked up to you after church today and I said, hey, can I borrow your phone? And you handed it over to me and I took it and I threw it as far as I could and it shattered, right? This is hypothetical. I'm not actually going to do this. But let's say I did, all right? Now, you could punch me in the nose. You could call the cops and have me arrested. I would pay. Therefore, I would be paying for what I had done. Or you could take the, the Christ-like road and you could say, I forgive you. Then who pays? You pay. You pay the price for my sin, not me. Somebody pays either way. And you could say, well, wait a second. I, I just won't have a phone. Who are we kidding? Even if you said that, even if you become the one person on earth that doesn't need a phone anymore, you're still having to pay because you are, you, have, you are paying through your loss of what you once had. Now that's one sin I've committed. In the course of my life, I've committed, let's conservatively say, more than one sin. Okay? Let's say it's in the thousands, maybe more. That's a lot of debt. Scripture says that every sin that I commit... It's not just a sin against you. It's a sin against Him. Somebody's got to pay. And I should pay. And you should pay. And that that debt has separated us further and further from God. And you wonder why the world's getting more and more messed up. That's why. And Jesus steps forward and says, I'll pay. Because He did that, He is worthy to open the scroll. Because He did that, He is worthy to fix this world and make it right. You see, He is worthy. And that means two things. That means two very exciting things, but two things we have to grapple with. Number one, that means that this world is in good hands. That means that we can trust Him. I had a friend who once was having surgery, minor surgery, but you know what they say, minor surgery is what happens to other people. He was in the middle of this surgery. He was unconscious when suddenly he woke up. Surgery was still going on. Now, fortunately for my friend, he was still so hazy and and dopey, he felt like he was dreaming, but he he sat up and he looked around him and there's doctors and nurses and anesthetists and, and he looks down and there's this gaping hole in his middle and the doctor is holding something in his hand and the doctor says, oh, hey, um, I'm just working on this right now. I'm going to cut this right here and I'm going to attach it over there and you'll be just fine. Now go back to sleep. And my friend said, okay. And he went back to sleep. True story. I say that to say this. I think it's a pretty good analogy for how we feel sometimes about this world. You wake up in the morning, you turn on the news, or you just go through life and what happens to you on a daily basis, you start to think, it's like I've woken up and I'm in the middle of surgery 
and, and all my innards are exposed and, and there's blood everywhere and it looks terrible. And it is, unless the person with the scalpel knows exactly what he's doing. See, if I, if I had to observe my own surgery, I'd be scared to death. And the only thing that would get me through it is if I knew that the guy doing the surgery never made a mistake, always knew exactly what he was doing, and every surgery he performed worked out for the good of the patient. If, if that's the case, then I can handle it. I'm still going to be scared. It's still going to be ugly. But I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust. So we can trust him. That's the good news. The other good news is he is worthy, so that means no one else is. And here's the challenging part. Not only do we have to trust him, we have to trust nothing else. We have to put him absolutely first. He's worthy and no one else is. If we're honest, if we are honest, and very few of us are very often, but if we're honest, we'll have to admit, most of the time it's not Jesus flying our plane. It's something else or someone else. There's something else that's really important to us. Now, yeah, most of us would say, I accepted Christ when I was X number of years old and I was baptized and I believe in Him and I know He's forgiven my sins. And yeah, we trust Him for our salvation. We believe that He's going to get us to heaven when we die. But when it comes to day-to-day -day life and what we're really living for and what brings us identity and purpose and joy and what we really hope in, it's something else. It's you know, maybe we're single and, and, and we're really hoping to meet that, that perfect person, our soulmate, that's going to make everything okay. Or maybe we have kids and, and what really motivates us is I've got to make sure that my kids get into the right schools and I've got to make sure Junior can throw a curveball and I've got to make sure that, you know, they, they date the right people and that they're happy and successful and, and healthy. And that's my definition of my success. Or maybe it's your career, and maybe you have a very prestigious career, and, and you want to do really, really well in it, and that's how you measure yourself. Or, or maybe it's your political ideology, and it's very important to you. Nothing matters more than making sure that your side wins and the other side loses, because if the other side is in charge, this world is going down hard. So you need to make sure that people who think like you are on top. Or maybe, maybe it's the approval of others. I mean, can, can anybody else identify with me and say that, man, it's, it's hard to be happy if I feel like somebody's unhappy with me? You know, if certain people are disappointed in me, then, then I feel like I've been a failure. Or maybe it's your, your financial bottom line and there's some arbitrary number. You've said, if I can just make this much per year or if I can just, if I can just have the, this much in assets, if I can just have this kind of level of financial security, then, then I will have made it. And none of those things, hear me, none of those things are bad. But all of those things make terrible pilots for the airplane of your life. None of those things are worthy. You know why? Because none of them died for you. Girls, your boyfriend will never die for you. Parents, your children can't atone for your sin. Your career won't lay down its life for you. Your political party does not care whether you live or die. They, they wouldn't die for you. Those people who you're so worried about impressing, they haven't died for your sins, but Jesus has. Only He's worthy. So that leads me to two challenges for us this week. Now, if you look in your, uh, in your at first guide, I've got a prayer, a prayer challenge for us as we do every week. And this week I'm challenging us to pray for the unity of our congregation, for the ongoing unity of First Baptist. But there's two other things I want you to pray for. So you might want to write these down. Two things I want you to pray. Number one, 
Pray this week, starting today, Lord, I trust you. Say, Lord, I trust you. I I know that this world is messed up, and I know that my life has problems, and I would change things if I could, but I can't. I just trust you to work this out. And even even saying that, you may say to me, but I, I can't pray that prayer, Jeff, because I don't feel that way. I'm scared. I'm worried. I lay up nights worrying about my problems, my issues. And I want to say this. I want you to hear me well, okay? Having faith doesn't mean fear goes away. Being afraid, I'll say that the opposite way, being afraid doesn't mean you have weak faith. We talked about this some last week. When the Bible says fear not, it doesn't mean that it's a sin to feel the emotion of fear. You can't can't control your emotions. You can control what your emotions do to you. So faith is being afraid and doing the right thing anyway. I'll give you two scriptural stories to back that up. One one is the story of these three teenage boys from Israel who were part of the first wave of invasion when when Babylon invaded Israel or Judah and carried off the best and the brightest of, of Israel's young men. And these three boys were taken to Babylon where they were trained to be uh, servants in the court of the king. They were taught the Babylonian language. They were given Babylonian names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Ever heard of those guys? And then they were commanded, bow down to the king's statue. This golden image, when you hear the music, hit your face, bow down, and and worship. And these three boys said, king, we are not going to worship. You've got a fiery furnace. You're going to throw us in there? God's stronger than you. Our God is able to rescue us. Here's the crucial part. But even if He does not, even if He does not, we're still not going to worship your idol. See, that's faith. Were they afraid? Yeah. They said, hey, we could die. And, and if you got to die, being thrown into a furnace is not the way you want to go. I don't want this to happen. And it might happen. But even if it doesn't, I'm still going to trust in God. I'm going to do the right thing. Second story, even more important to us personally, is the story of Jesus in Gethsemane. Jesus face down on the ground, weeping, agonizing, praying, and and agonizing so much that His sweat turned to blood, and praying to God and saying, Lord, take this cup from me. The cross is hours away. This is my destiny in life. I don't want to do it. My flesh is rebelling against this. Is there any other way for me to rescue humanity? But even if there's not... Not my will, but yours be done. Was Jesus afraid to go to the cross? Yes, He was. Did He go to the cross? Yes, He did. He had faith. He had courage. And because of that, we are saved. Because of that, we can be His. So say to Him, even if you don't feel confident in your heart, say, Lord, I trust You. Teach me to trust You more. And the second challenge is, pray, Jesus, be Lord of my life. Jesus, be Lord of my life. And again, some of you would say, I've done that. I got saved all those years ago. But is He really in charge? When you say, Jesus, be Lord of my life, what you're doing is you're you're asking the Holy Spirit to conduct a, a ruthless personal inventory of your life and to just say, here's who's really in charge of you. You're asking Him to expose your idols. And we've all got them. And when that happens... Just renounce those things and say, Lord, I want you on the throne and you alone. I want you at the wheel because only you are worthy. And, and, and just confess to him the fear you feel at offering God that kind of control. Because let's be honest, 
we do worry. If you're a parent, you worry about saying to the Lord, Lord, my children, I love them, but I know you love them more, so I give them over to you. You worry about that. Why? Because what if God makes them missionaries to Abu Dhabi and you never see them again? Or, or you know, if you say, Lord, my finances are in your hands. I offer it all to you. Well, what if he asked you to give it all away? Then what will you have left? Or if your thing is, is personal approval, and you say, okay, Lord, I, I don't care anymore what people think of me. I want to serve you and, and work for your satisfaction alone. Well, you're afraid that, that you'll become some kind of religious nut job that everyone will laugh at. Just confess to him. Say, Lord, I'm, I'm afraid of this, but I'm going to choose to trust you. I want you to be Lord of my life. And here's why. Here's why you should. Here's why you should. Life is risky. We take a risk every time we get on an airplane or a bus, every time we submit to surgery. But in this case, we're being asked to trust a person who's so wise, he has literally, literally never made a mistake. And he's so powerful, he created everything that exists, every molecule in the universe. And who loves you so much, he went through hell on earth just so that there could be a chance that you would choose to spend eternity with Him. I think it's safe to trust in someone like that. Not anybody else but Him. He is worthy and He alone. You can trust in Him. You can make Him Lord of your life. So what do you say?